0: Welcome to the Paralegal Voice, where you hear the latest issues and trends in the world of paralegals and legal assistance by one of the best known paralegals in the industry, Vicki Voicin. A paralegal for more than 20 years, Vicki is dedicated to helping legal professionals reach their goals. You're listening to
1: Legal Talk Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Paralegal Voice here on Legal Talk Network. I'm Vicki Voison, the Paralegal Mentor and host of the Paralegal Voice. I'm an NALA Advanced Certified Paralegal. I publish a weekly e-newsletter titled Paralegal Strategies, and I'm also the co-author of The Professional Paralegal, A Guide to Finding a Job and Career Success. You'll find more information at paralegalmentor.com. My guest today is Attorney Kevin DuBose, one of the founding partners of the Appellate Boutique, Alexander, DuBose, Jefferson, and Townsend, LLP, with offices in Austin, Dallas, and Houston, Texas. Mr. DuBose is in the Houston office, and I'm so happy to have you here today. Welcome.
2: Thanks, Vicki. It's good to talk to you again.
1: Thank you. Now, before we begin, our sponsors should be recognized and thanked. That would be NALA, the Professional Association for Paralegals, providing continuing education and professional certification programs for paralegals at NALA.org. NALA is a force in the promotion and the advancement of the paralegal profession and also has been a sponsor of the Paralegal Voice since the beginning. Our second sponsor is ServeNow, a nationwide network of trusted pre-screened process servers, work with the most professional process servers who have experience with high-volume serves, embrace technology, and also understand that litigation process. Visit ServeNow.com to learn more. The goal of the Paralegal Voice is to discuss a wide range of topics that are important to the paralegal industry, and share with you leading trends, significant developments, and resources you'll find helpful in your career, and also your everyday job. Guests are usually included to help explore timely topics, and for that reason, I've invited Kevin DeVos to join me today. I met Kevin last spring when I spoke at the Houston Paralegal Association's annual conference in Galveston. His topic, Successful Legal Writing Strategies for Today's Readers, was was really terrific, and I took away a lot of great information. In fact, he was so good that I want paralegals nationwide to hear what he has to say, so I've invited him to share more with you on The Paralegal Voice. Kevin's interest in writing can be traced back to being raised by a high school English teacher and also pursuing an undergraduate degree in English at Rice University. At the University of Texas Law School, he was chosen as teaching quiz master to assist first-year students in legal research and writing. As a young lawyer, he moonlighted as an adjunct professor of legal writing at the University of Houston Law Center. He later became the Director of Legal Research and Writing at UHLC and then served as its first Director of Appellate Advocacy. After a sabbatical from teaching, he went back to serve as an Adjunct Professor of Appellate Advocacy from 2005 to 2010. He's a frequent CLE speaker and author, often speaking and writing about legal writing. He's written chapters about legal writing for three books, Texas Appellate Practice Manual, Second Edition, 1993, Texas Supreme Court Practice Manual, 2005, and Legal Nurse Consulting Principles and Practice, Second Edition, 2003. Now, Kevin, you have a very impressive CV. In fact, I've read it. It has a lot more detail than what I just gave our listeners. So uh, I know you're a busy lawyer, and I'm just delighted that you took the time to be my guest today.
2: Well, thank you, Vicky. I, I always uh, am happy to take time out from actual legal writing to facilitate the process of uh, thinking and learning about writing.
1: Well, first of all, since you write, uh, you know, you specialize in appellate work, you have to have a lot of great uh, writing skills for that. But you also need to meet the needs of people who are using the new technology. So, you know, 20 years ago, most reading was from paper. Uh, technology's changed our reading environment, so I'd like for you to tell listeners about the changes and why it's important to pay attention when writing today.
2: Well, it, it, we are undergoing a, a major sea change. In fact, the, the last uh, 20 years have probably seen the the biggest uh, change in reading habits since the the introduction of the printing press centuries ago. And and that change is that most people are are getting most of their information electronically, which means instead of reading on paper, they're reading from screens, whether it be desktops or laptops or tablets or or even smartphones. Uh, Most of us do most of our reading now, whether it's work-related or pleasure reading, fiction, news reading, Uh, The vast majority of people get the majority of their information by reading screens rather than uh, by reading from paper.
1: Well, I agree with you, and I hate to admit it, but I'm a dinosaur. I learned to type on a manual typewriter. Uh, when I took my first job in a law office, we used electric typewriters, but we made loads of carbon copies. I remember trying to do a will with eight carbon copies, or a um, document anyway. I am not so sure it was a will. Uh, we made a lot of carbon copies. We barely used the Xerox machine, and they were all, all Xerox machines. We didn't call them anything else, you know. But as technology progressed, we used computers, but then those were mostly for word processing. You know, we didn't use them for communication. And I even remember, uh, you know, for a while, we weren't allowed to be on the Internet. We were t- it was totally word processing. So today my work environment is screen-based, as you said, and I certainly wouldn't want to go back to the days before technology. So I'm interested in your take on all of these changes. And, and also, I'd, I'd like for you to address how it, it's not always easy to keep up, but we don't have any choice, do we?
2: Uh, that's exactly right. I mean, the the law office has changed completely since when I started practicing in in 1979, and and really most of those changes have been in the last 20 years rather than the first 20 years of my practice. When I started practicing law, uh, we did all of our drafting uh, either uh, some people wrote by hand on a legal pad, uh, some people dictated. But uh, I didn't know a single lawyer who was proficient on a keyboard, Uh, whereas now almost everyone I know does all of their drafting on a keyboard. Uh, Client communications used to be entirely by mail. That changed a little bit when fax machines became uh, more prevalent and introduced a little bit greater immediacy. But even then, it wasn't anything like email. And now, uh, I just don't hardly ever get letters from clients. And if I do, it's usually something that makes me really nervous. (laughs) I feel like there's something they have to document in a a paper letter. Legal research, when I first started practicing, was uh, done entirely in in books with the digest system. I remember when I was in law school hearing about an optional course uh, being offered after uh, regular classes one day on something called Westlaw. But uh, somebody described to me, I said, well, it sounds crazy, it'll never work. I was obviously wrong. The way that we review, as appellate lawyers, we review records. We used to have to check out boxes with multiple volumes of of paper records that we would read, and now we just go to the Court of Appeals and pick up a disc that has the entire record on it. Uh, Our calendar and docket management systems used to be on paper. Uh, That's all done by computer uh, I mean, for, for the first 15 years of my practice, I didn't even have a computer in my office, and, and now uh, I have it on and in front of me, and it's it's the bedrock of my existence in the office, or, or even out of the office. I mean, my, my office now travels with me through my computer. I can be at home. I can be on vacation. I can be anywhere in practice, uh, whereas that, that was unthinkable years ago. So it's it's changed just about everything that I do.
1: Well, I I really enjoy that flexibility of being able to work wherever, even though it does cause some other issues such as the fact that you're working twenty four seven and there's some some security issues.
2: It's kind of a double edged sword because the convenience uh, the technology gives us the convenience to to work wherever we are, which is is a wonderful thing. I, I can work at home and work when I'm on vacation, and but the the downside is that it makes us accountable, and our clients expect us to be available twenty four seven, and that that's much more demanding than it used to be.
1: It really is, and and also I find myself. Not getting off the computer. I go from one thing to another. It's a I have all kinds of interests, so I'm doing research or I'm reading an article, and it just doesn't. I I find it difficult to quit.
2: The other complicating factor is that uh, we now have a computer in it that fits in our our pocket, and we right. carry it around with us twenty four seven. So while you would never think of of carrying your computer around. It's it's so easy to check that smartphone or that tablet or, or whatever you have. And we all got in the habit of having it with us constantly and checking it constantly. So
1: yes, yes, we have. Well, as I told you, I've been through this whole change that's been going on from um, from early technology forward, and I am glad you know I've in, I've enjoyed all of that. But I am probably one of the few people left who really enjoys a newspaper. I like to read the newspaper in the morning, and uh, getting that news on the computer doesn't work as well for me as some people, as it must for other people. I don't know. Do you still read a newspaper?
2: I do, and, and we uh, at a firm meeting one time, I took an informal poll, and I was the only person in my office out of eight people who, who reads a physical newspaper,
1: mm-hmm. and
2: I still do. And, and I, mm-hmm. I, I read physical books physical magazines, but uh, I, I think you and I are both a little, uh, we're we uh, different from the majority, Vicki.
1: Right. Well, thank goodness uh, that we're helping support the newspaper industry, right. right anyway. way. <laughs> so we're going to take just a short break now for a word from our sponsor, NALA, the Association of Legal Assistance Paralegals, and serve now a nationwide network of trusted pre-screened process servers. When we come back, we'll continue our discussion about working and writing in today's legal environment with Houston attorney Kevin Debose.
0: NALA means professional. NALA offers classroom and web-based continuing education and professional development for all paralegals. And NALA's certified paralegal credential has been a gold standard of professionalism for over 30 years. More than 15,000 paralegals have this certification and nearly 2,000 have achieved the demanding advanced certified paralegal. NALA works actively with others in the legal field to promote the value of paralegals and to advance paralegal professionalism. See more about why NALA means professional at www.nala.org. Visit www.servenow.com.
1: Welcome back to the Paralegal Voice. I'm Vicki Voysen. My guest today is Kevin Debose. I'm chatting with Kevin about how technology has uh, changed the way we work and we communicate. Especially how we read today, and and Kevin, I know that you stress five key features of the new working environment that are changing the way we read. So tell us about that.
2: Well, the important thing is that it, it doesn't just change the way we read that we read; it changes the way that our audience reads, and that's that's one thing I really stress in in writing is to think about your audience and how your audience will perceive. What you write and and these are important things to keep in mind about y- your audience, first of all, the fact that people are reading on computer screens and and when they read something on a computer screen we 're always competing with the other things that are available on that screen, specifically, the internet is a constant source of information and entertainment, but also distraction as as I sit at my computer screen working, I may let my mind wander and I start thinking about making a dinner reservation for this weekend or reading about a movie that came out or uh, some news item that I wonder if there have been developments since I read my, my paper paper this morning. And those are all there at my fingertips. So that's a constant source of, of distraction. And when we're writing for somebody, we're, we need to realize that we're competing against that distraction. The second thing is that uh, search engines indoctrinate us to, uh, to value speed rather than depth. Because of things like Google, which are incredibly efficient, we're used to, to thinking that we ought to expect an answer within five seconds rather than taking more time and providing a more thoughtful, in-depth answer. We go for that that quick answer, and that, that changes the way that people read. Third, screens are harder to read, uh, partly because when we read books or, or magazines or a newspaper, what we are reading is reflected light, But a computer screen is is backlit, so the light is actually shining through the screen into your eyes. It's harder on your eyes. It causes eye fatigue. It causes dryness, uh, sometimes excessive blinking, and usually in subtle ways we're not even aware of. But because it's harder to read, that encourages us to go quicker because we want to get it over with quicker, and that encourages skimming, which is an important thing to keep in mind. The fact that we have multiple windows uh, available on a screen promotes multitasking. Uh, at some point a few years ago, my firm got a second computer monitor for all the attorneys in the firm, and I originally thought, what, what do I need with two monitors? One is plenty. And after using two for a while, I'm, I'm thinking, uh, you know, three really would be nice. <laughs> um, and even within each monitor with Windows environment, you can... Uh, constantly reduced, so you can have six or eight o- windows open at once, and when I'm writing a brief, I'll have a window with the document, another one with the record, another one with Westlaw, maybe another one with notes, and, and the, the temptation to jump back and forth between windows is something that we need to keep in mind. And finally, one of the all-time biggest distractions is email. It's just taken over who we are and what we do. Uh, the latest the study I've seen was in 2009, uh, which said at that point the average American worker receives about 200 emails a day. I'm sure that average has gone up since then. Another study showed that we spent about 40% of our time sending and receiving emails. So, anytime somebody's reading on a screen, you're competing with the temptation to check or to send. Uh, emails, and all of those things just create major distractions, and we we need to realize that in our writing strategies.
1: Well, it also affects productivity, too, a little bit, but one of the things that I was going to say, and you just made the point of everything, we, we want everything immediately, and so clients want immediate responses. And what I was going to say about when I do an ethics class, I usually tell people to, you know, just kind of slow down and don't give such an immediate response because you you might need to give a response that takes a lot, uh, takes some judgment and doing something right away may, may cause problems. So that's a whole nother issue that we have with this technology, but I still say I love it. So the other thing is that we've been talking about reading long text. Nobody wants to do that, you know, and we also don't do it very well. I listen to books on my iPod, I download those from Audible, and I rarely read. A real book anymore. And I'm I'm saddened by that, except that I get to read a lot more books. So that, that's the good part. But the new focus means that we're mostly skimming. You know, we're not really reading. So is that right?
2: That is absolutely true. And it, it, the, the interesting thing is that, and, and a lot of this research comes from um, uh, research on, on web usability and, and uh, studies about the way that people read websites. But what they have discovered is that uh, reading on screens and the temptation to skim is so pervasive that it actually has has changed the way that we think and that we read. It's My, my brother is one of my law partners who's done a lot of work in this area. He refers to it as rewiring the brain, and our brains have become rewired by these technological changes so that even when we read on paper, we read like we're reading on a screen. So the the temptations to skim and to only read headings and first sentences carries over so that even when we're not reading on a screen, we're just reading paper, the same things happen. I sometimes get some pushback from lawyers who say, when I talk about reading on screen, they say, well, most of the judges I write for are, are older and, and they still read paper briefs. Well, that's true, but if you do any reading on a screen, it changes the way that you read, and, and so it's become completely
1: pervasive. Well, I find that when I, I read now, especially on the screen, especially an email, I see what I want to see and very often I'll assume it says something other than what it says or I miss a detail. Uh, so we need to be really careful that our message is, is out there and clear. Um, you know, if judges and other attorneys and clients are, are really just skimming, how do we change the way we write so that they do get our message? You know, how do we do that?
2: Well, there are some important techniques you can use. One is, is uh, frequent use of, of headings. And, and summaries and the importance of topic sentences, if you realize that people may not read everything that you write, particularly if you have a really long paragraph, chances are by the end of the paragraph, they're going to uh, get distracted and, and move on to something else. So they will frequently read a heading or read the first paragraph. So uh, that's really important. If it's a, a, a document of any length at all, some sort of executive summary up front is is very important because... I mean, in the old days, we used to write long briefs that would kind of uh, start slowly and start with something basic and lay out the law and talk about the facts and finally build to this grand, eloquent conclusion on on page 50. Well, they're not going to be with you at that point anymore, so it's important to distill that grand conclusion and put it up front. Uh, so that the reader knows, uh, first of all, they have a context for what they're about to read, but that may be all you get from them, from their attention span, is the, that first page or that first paragraph or first sentence. So headings, summaries, topic sentences of, of paragraphs are very important because people that may be all that people read. And uh, again, uh, there used to be more of a writing style where people would start with a, a simple concept in a paragraph and build to a conclusion towards the end of the paragraph now we really need to find ways to take the important part of the paragraph, start with that, and then go back and, and explain how you got there. But structure is very important. Psychological uh, studies have revealed that the human brain is incapable of uh, retaining and absorbing unstructured information. So if you write long, flowing sentences and, and long paragraphs, um, it it may be beautifully eloquent prose, but if it doesn't have a structure to it, the reader's probably not going to discern it and and certainly not remember it. So that's why we need headings and subheadings and sub-subheadings and easy-to-follow structures uh, so that a reader can, can follow. I advocate shorter and simpler words, sentences, and paragraphs on almost every level. If somebody's reading fast, you want to make it as easy for them as possible. And uh, shorter words and more familiar words are better than than reading something that sounds like somebody wrote it with a thesaurus in hand. Short sentences are easier to follow than long, complex sentences and short paragraphs. This is not just something I do in briefs. I've noticed recently when I write emails uh, of any length at all. I have a tendency when I'm writing emails to kind of use a stream of consciousness, and each sentence kind of flows into the next sentence, and I'll look up and I'll see a block of text that's about 15 lines long that I know nobody wants to wade through. And I'll go back and and try to put in paragraph breaks when the subject changes and end up with with very short two- or three-sentence paragraphs, and it's amazing how much more inviting the screen looks and how easier it is to read uh, something that's broken up like that. Uh, Lists make things much easier to read and comprehend. Bullet points, uh, white space on the screen is very important. That's another thing that breaks up the blocks of text. So anything you can do to kind of spread things out and give it structure and give it a look so that somebody can look at the screen quickly and figure out the logic and, and the order to what you're trying to say will make it much more likely that your work will get read.
1: Right, and they need to see the important words right away. Now, I, I do talk with a lot of uh, paralegals who are crafting their resumes, and I've found that I tell them many of the things that you've already stressed today because those are important in resume writing, you know. Again, nobody looks at it for very long, uh, but they need to be very careful with their word placement and omitting, you know, needless words. And also, I noticed that you talk about the F pattern. That's very important in resume writing and I think in other writing also.
2: Yeah, the, the F-pattern is, again, a, a product of web usability research. And what they did was a, a, attached a to... Well, I don't know they attached. They studied people's eye movements when they're reading a screen and on a microscopic level. And and they charted which parts of the screen get read the most often. And they will people will likely scan down the left-hand margin to get clues, for structural clues like indentations and headings and bullets and things like that. And they often will read across the page, at least especially at the beginning, uh, and read headings and read first sentences of paragraphs. So if you plot these on a page and, and it's 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 more vivid if I could show you a picture, but uh it, it results in something that looks like the letter F. And uh, so it's going to be called the F pattern. I'm sure anybody can Google the phrase F pattern, and, and you'll get this picture of this X-ray. So that, that means you want to concentrate the important information uh, towards the left-hand side of the page and towards the top of the page, and the things in the lower right-hand corner almost never get, get read. But, yeah, a lot of what I was saying about applies to, to resumes. I think they should rarely be more than a page. Uh, they should use lists and bullets rather than long, chunky prose paragraphs. Uh, short phrases um, of, avoid big blocks of text. I've I've never hired somebody because they wrote a long, detailed description of their skills and abilities. It's it's always what they've done, and it's more based on facts. and And then ultimately, talking to them and and getting some expression of their personality, but reading the way they describe themselves has never convinced me to hire someone.
1: True, true. Now, we, uh, you also talked about uh, short, simple words and not using needless words. And I wanted to throw in here that last year I interviewed a gentleman who created a software program that's called WordRake, just W-O-R-D-R-A-K-E. That program reviews documents and highlights needless words and then lets you remove them if you if you want to. I noticed that I use the word, well, I just did it, that, over and over and over again when I don't really need to. And it helps with that, especially when you know you're watching the length of your document and also you want people to to read what you've done. So it's it's uh, as I said, there's a free 30-day trial for WordRake, and that's at WordRake.com. And I think it'd be particularly useful for people whose writing skills need some improvement. So there are um, tools like that out there to help us. Would you ever consider using something like that, or are you already... You're already my expert, so I don't think you need it. I'm
2: familiar it. with WordRake, and I, in fact, I get an email from them once a day, and and uh, when I, I do can, too. I read it, and I almost always agree with their tips, which is unusual for uh, when I first heard that it was a, a a program that that did better promoted better writing. I thought, well, that's just not possible. And I've, I've been won over by reading their emails. I agree with almost all their tips. I've never used it. This has kind of been a crusade for me for, for almost 40 years, uh, to omit needless words. And I think I'm pretty good at spotting them and, and getting rid of them. But for people that are new to this, that want some help uh, to kind of jump start their ability to identify necessary words. I think that that program makes a lot of sense and would be a great idea.
1: It really does. I did try the 30-day trial, and it it does work. It's amazing. It does work. Well, do you have any more tips for uh, making documents simpler? And Well, if we make them simpler, we're going to have greater writing success. What do you have for us?
2: I think the most important thing is just cultivating an attitude of putting yourself in the position of your reader. Uh, A lot of times the way that writing has been taught in this country is focuses on the writer's strategy and and you gather all this information, you have all these thoughts and you decide how you can disgorge all this inside of you onto the page or now onto the computer screen. And what we really need to, to focus on is what does the reader need to know, what do they know, how can they get that as quickly as possible? And I think we need to assume that our audience is ignorant about the subject matter, unless we have reason to know otherwise, assume that they're in a hurry, that they would rather be doing something other than than reading what you put on the screen about whatever legal subject it is, and that they want to get maximum information in a minimum amount of time with a minimum effort. And so uh, rather than memorizing a lot of rules and techniques, I think if you can cultivate that attitude of thinking, what what exactly do they need and exclude everything else and make it as easy as possible for them to get that, uh, to minimize their investment in reading your work, then it's more likely they're actually going to read your work and comprehend it and get something out of it. And that's really what we're all about.
1: Well, I found, I, I want to bring up one more thing because I found this so interesting is that you say that people really don't want to think, so you need to write so that they don't have to think. Is that right?
2: That is true, and, and a, a lot of people take that wrongly because they they think that that by saying that I'm I'm insulting uh, readers, whether they be judges or other lawyers or clients or whatever. It's not that people are incapable of thinking; it's just that we're all in too much of a hurry to think. And and again, we we want to the task that people are usually undertaking when they're reading legal writing. Is something they would rather not be doing. And they want to get in and get out as quickly as possible. And if you make them think, make them draw the connections, that's just going to slow down the process. And they're not going to be as likely to do it. So you do the thinking for them, you figure out a way to arrange the words on the page that make it as easy as possible for them to do their job, and then you've done your job.
1: So, Kevin, I know we've barely scratched the surface here. There's so many things to know about successful legal writing strategies and, you know, in this changing world that we're part of, and it's just going to keep on changing. But I thank you very much for joining me today.
2: Well, you're welcome, Vicki. I've enjoyed sharing my thoughts about this. Every time I talk about it, I find myself coming up with, uh, with new insights. And the important thing is, as you say it, it is an absolutely changing world. My, my office looks completely different than it did when I started. And, and even my writing, I go back and look at things I wrote even 10 years ago, and I think, God, I can't believe I used to do that. Uh, <laughs> but I'm, I'm still learning, and, uh, and things are still changing, and, and we just do what we can to keep up with it.
1: Right, right. Well, let's take another short break right now. Don't go away, because when I come back, I'll have news and also career tips for you.
0: We're glad you're listening to Legal Talk Network. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, too.
1: Well, I'm back after I've said goodbye to Mr. Debose. I think he was really great today. I want to let you all know that I'm going to be speaking at the Orange County Paralegal Association Conference on September 20th in Newport Beach California and any of you who can make it I would just love to meet you I'll be giving two ethics presentations. one will be on fees and billing and the other one is on um, the ethical handling of client property both of those are very important so before I go though I want to share with you an email that I received from a listener Uh, She says, I'm assuming it's a she, I received my certification on, well, you know what, that's where she started off wrong, right there. She says, I received my certification in February of 2014. What she's trying to say, or should have said, is that she's received her certificate, and that would be what you get when you complete a two-year program. Certification is when you complete um, an examination that's offered by an appropriate entity, such as NALA anyway uh, she's out of school in February of 2014 she entered interned at a law firm for four months thinking hopefully that the firm would hire her and that's always one good reason for doing an internship but that didn't end up working out for her and now she's looking for a job interviewing and the problem is that she's not able to get a job because she doesn't have experience. So her question is, you know, how do I get experience so that I can get a job if I can't get a job because I have no experience? And that's a question, a really good question, and it's asked all the time. So this listener isn't alone. And I do have some tips And uh, some of these you can do while you're still in school. First of all, that internship is very important. Uh, Maybe you won't get that job, but you do meet people, even people who are outside the firm. So that's really important. The other thing is to, you know, I know you have your degree in in a paralegal program, but instead of, uh, you know, if there's no paralegal job out there, take any job in a law firm or a corporation, a corporate legal department, so you can get your foot in the door and you can demonstrate your abilities. So, I mean, if it means you've got to answer the phone, you know, I wouldn't have suggested that a few years ago, but the downturn in the economy really hurt us, and so now you've got to, you know, you've got to find a way to get your foot in the door. Another thing is to join a local association for networking and also word-of-mouth opportunities. Uh, Many of these jobs don't ever get advertised. Always maintain good relationships with the people that you went to school with, the professors, and so forth. Be sure you're using social media and using it carefully, of course. But uh, never hurts to do some networking on Facebook and Twitter, and of course LinkedIn. You should be on LinkedIn just to get your resume out there. Be sure that everybody you know knows you're looking for a job. Never, you know, nothing to be ashamed of. And if somebody may so know someone else who's looking for someone. When you do your resume, listen to the points that Mr. DuBose brought up today, and you will be writing a resume based on your knowledge and your education versus experience. So I have a course that I did. It's on my website, and it's called A Blueprint for, um, for Resume Writing, and that might help you. It's uh, very inexpensive because you know you have you aren't the person who's been working for 10 years in the legal field so you're going to be writing a different kind of resume and then also you can uh, do some online continuing education in special interest areas or technology areas that might point out a skill that you're going to need for a job. And there's always, you know, go ahead and get your certification. The three national associations that I know of allow that you to sit for a certification exam once you've uh, finished your education and provided that that education meets certain standards. So those are all some good ways. I wish you lots of luck because I know it's it's difficult, but hang in there and don't give up trying. Now, that's about all the time we have today for the Paralegal Voice. If you have questions, I always love to hear from you. Uh, please email them to Vicki, that's V-I-C-K-I, at paralegalmentor.com. Also, don't forget to check out my blog, paralegalmentorblog.com, and the resources that are available at paralegalmentor.com. They've been designed to help you move your career in the right direction, and that is always forward. This is Vicki Voison thanking you for listening to The Paralegal Voice and reminding you to make your paralegal voice heard.
0: Thanks for listening to The Paralegal Voice, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join Vicki Voicen for her next podcast on issues and trends affecting paralegals and legal assistants. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes.